Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined by Dr. William von Hippel. He is professor of psychology at the University of Queensland, Australia. He has published more than a hundred articles, chapters, and edited books in social psychology. And this research has been featured in The New York Times, USA Today, The Economist, BBC, Le Monde, El Mundo, Der Spiegel, and The Australian. He also recently published a book called The Social Leap, The New Evolutionary Science of Who We Are, Where We Come From, and What Makes Us Happy. And that will be the central topic in our conversation today. So, Dr. Van Hippel, welcome to the show. Thank you a lot for taking the time. Uh, thanks for having me. Okay, good. So uh, the first question I, I would like to ask you, I guess, because I think that your book is mostly about the evolution of human sociality, right? Yes. So, so that being said, I guess that one of the main sources of evidence from an evolutionary perspective that people usually resort to when they're talking about the evolution of sociality and social cognition uh, is uh, comparative psychology, that is comparing ourselves with our fellow primates like uh, gorillas, orangutans, chimpanzees, bonobos and other species like that. So uh, in what ways can we really compare us with, with those species? Because I guess that uh, they are all a bit different among themselves and we also have uh, other differences and even between us and chimpanzees that I guess are our closest cousins, right? So, um, I mean, what can we do with that information? Yeah, that's a great question. So on the one hand, as you pointed out, we are the most similar to chimpanzees out of the other great apes. And so they're always going to be our go-to comparison to say, well, how do we differ from them? How are we similar? What might have led to that? Now, the problem, of course, is that we don't know if we're different from them because they've changed or because we've changed, right? So it's a little bit unclear what that common ancestor would have looked like. We're on stronger ground whenever we can make comparisons between ourselves and the other great apes where they're all similar in one way and where we differ from that in that particular dimension. So whenever that happens, whenever all the great apes show trait X and we show trait Y, then we've got pretty good confidence that we evolved away from them. Parsimony would suggest that. And so with regard to sociality, my favorite example is always the whites of our eyes. All the great apes have brown sclera around the edges of their eyes, and that disguises the direction of their gaze. But human beings advertise the direction of their gaze with the white sclera of their eyes. So it's nice evidence that we almost assuredly evolved away from our great ape common ancestors uh, in order to display the direction of our attention, which is a sign of our cooperative nature. If I disguise the direction of my gaze, it suggests that you and I are fundamentally competitive, and I don't want you to know what I'm thinking. I don't want you to know what attracted my attention. But if I advertise the direction of my gaze, it's pretty good evidence that you and I are fundamentally cooperative. And I want you to know the direction of my gaze because you'll probably help me achieve whatever that goal might be. 
Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, but I mean, there's a lot of biological continuity, but uh, the main ways by which we differ from our primate cousins, did it all start with the fact that at a certain point in our evolutionary history, we moved on from the rainforest to the savanna and we got new, new evolution, new envi- environmental pressure, sorry. Yeah, that's a that's in all probability one of the major players there. By moving to the savanna, um, which um, arguably we didn't by choice, but rather because disappear um, on the east side of the Rift Valley, um, that disappearance of the rainforest, which forced us onto the savanna, led to all sorts of important changes for us. And again, those changes are lead to all sorts of ways that humans are unique, with bipedality being one of them. But I certainly believe that the biggest evolutionary pressure that led to our divergence from our chimpanzee cousins uh, was, in fact, yes, the disappearance of the rainforest and our subsequent move to the savanna. Mm-hmm. Okay, so one of the most important things that we acquired after that, and perhaps one of the first ones, was bipedality, correct? So, uh, what do you know, uh, do we know about that? I mean, uh, there are people who put uh, lots of different hypotheses on the table, that perhaps bipedality was useful for us to liberate our hands, to use them to uh, construct, to develop tools, or even to carry things around. There are other people who refer to the fact that perhaps with us uh, having bipedality, we would be able to more easily locate uh, predators and prey in the savanna. So, do we already have any concrete answer to that? So that's a great question. We don't know exactly why we became bipedal, although I have some hypotheses and many other people do as well. We do know that it happened at least 3.6 million years ago. It had already happened by then because we have those footprints that show, those Laetoli footprints that show when you model them that um, the maker of those footprints, the Australopithecus, was walking with a locked knee and so a properly bipedal gait. So in all probability, it had been around for quite some time by that point in time. The the question then is, if we evolved it that early, what would be the pressures that would cause it? Now, there's, in, a, in something as important as bipedality, I suspect that it had multiple causes. So um, the greater efficiency in covering long distances on two limbs rather than four for our species probably played a role. The um, uh, possibly even wanting to stand a little taller to look out for predators. It seems less likely to me because, of course, when you travel East Africa, the grasses are at very different heights. In some places, that would be of value. Some places, that would be of little value. But psychologically, when you ask questions like, well, did we do it in order to carry things around, you then have to look at the capabilities of our ancestors. And we, when we look at Australopithecus and even later Homo habilis, there's no evidence that they ever carried around the tools that they quarried and made, those old one tools and even the possible tools that might have existed earlier. And so if they never carried around those tools, it's in all probability a sign that they had no capacity to envision unfelt needs. They couldn't imagine a world where they would need that tool again in the future because they didn't need it right now. And if that's the case, then you have to ask yourself, well, what would an animal be motivated to carry if it can't ever envision unfelt needs? And I suspect that the answer to that question is that as our ancestors set across the savannah each morning or afternoon or whenever they went off away from the trees in order to gather foods, they probably were afraid. 
because they, here they are basically a tree-dwelling species up till that point in time, and they're safe in the trees, but they're not safe on the ground. They've, they're now exposed to new predators. And so my guess is that each morning or each day when they set out across the savanna, they were afraid, and they wanted to have a weapon in their hand, some way to protect themselves, a stick or a rock. And that motivation, not unfelt needs, but the felt need of fear would have motivated them to carry a weapon. And I suspect that that's really the only thing that they were ever attempting to carry. But that alone would have been a significant pressure toward bipedality as well. Mm -hmm. And we can also associate uh, the stone-throwing hypothesis with that. Correct. Well, that's right. Now, but the stone throwing, I believe, would have come later because if you look at stone throwing, chimpanzees are very poor stone throwers given their strength um, because body isn't shaped the right way. Proper stone throwing is not just something of the arms, but rather requires rotation of the hips, rotation of the torso, rotation of the chest, and, and a flexible wrist. All of that would be a byproduct of bipedality. So once um, our ancestors became bipedal, their torso was stretched out, and their muscles started to move laterally across rather than vertically like chimpanzee muscles, which are more designed for climbing trees. Once all that was in place, or relatively in place, that would en have enabled our ancestors to throw stones much more effectively. And so people have argued that stone throwing was one of the major factors that protected us in the savannah, which I completely agree with. And in fact, I think stone throwing was the single factor that probably led to us generating collective action because one or two australopithecines throwing stones at a predator would have achieved nothing but a group of australopithecines stoning a predator could have driven even very large predators away and so i suspect that stone throwing was the single big psychological change brought about by a desire to protect ourselves on the savannah from large predators enabled by bipedality that we'd already evolved and now that's what probably kicked our incredible cranial expansion into gear all those opportunities that came about by virtue of collective action. Mm -hmm. Yes, this is very interesting because I guess that when or, or most people, particularly people that are not scientifically minded, when they think about our evolution, they tend very easily to separate uh, strictly physical things from psychological ones. But I guess that even the way our bodies are structured gi uh, give us clues to the fact that perhaps those things also influenced how our sociality evolved because for example we can use our hands to manipulate objects in very complex ways in comparison with our primate cousins let's say and that allowed us for example to start developing more and more complex tools for example for for hunting and to to hunt down prey uh, particularly medium to large prey, we did that in groups always, right? So, that, I mean, that also led us down an evolutionary path that if we didn't have those physical traits, we probably wouldn't develop, wouldn't have developed uh, also the corresponding psychological traits of our sociality. That, uh, that's absolutely right. And so when we're in the trees, our hands have to be very strong and very stable. When we leave the trees, that frees up our hands to be a bit more limber, a bit weaker. But weaker hands can be a good thing because we gain fine motor control. And so we gain the capacity to make things, tools like the example you gave that we didn't have before. We gain all sorts of capacities that in turn lead to psychological changes that would have been worthless for our um, 
common chimpanzee ancestors, you know, the common ancestors we had with them, but are now valuable to us because our body matches those psychological traits. And so it's very much the case that our psychology and our physiology have to co-evolve together in ways that make sense for both of them. And up until we were on the savanna, up until we were able to cooperate effectively with each other by stone throwing, there would have been very little to gain by becoming a lot smarter. It takes a lot of calories to feed a big brain, but we didn't have as much to gain by it because we weren't so fundamentally cooperative with each other. But once we had to cooperate in order to survive these newly threatening predators on the savanna, once that took place, well now our group goals align with our individual goals, our groups become much more effective as a consequence, and now there are huge advantages to getting smarter. Every gain that we make in IQ is going to have a commensurate gain in the kind of that we're able to, to um, hunt and therefore to feed the larger brain that we're now developing. Mm-hmm. Okay, and why did we really start hunting? Because I guess that uh, we started uh, to hunt uh, large animals or medium to large animals, but uh, couldn't, we, uh, couldn't we have strived only by consuming, uh, I don't know, insects or perhaps small mammals or something like that? Wouldn't that be enough for us or, or not? That was enough for us for a very long time. And so if you look at... Um, Australopithecines, I, I strongly doubt that they were able to do this kind of coordinated hunting it would take to kill large animals. But once they became bipedal, once they learned to protect themselves by throwing stones and drive predators away, it wouldn't have been an enormous cognitive leap to realize, oh, if we can drive predators away with throwing stones, we can kill animals by throwing stones as well. Now, I doubt they had the cognitive capacity for coordinated hunts, but I suspect that whenever they came upon um, animals that were even relatively large and were somewhat were alone and otherwise therefore defenseless, they would have pelted them with stones to see if that enabled a new, you know, a new prey in the pot. And similarly, it would have facilitated scavenging. If you came upon an animal that had made a kill that was alone, you could drive that animal away and take its kill. And so step by step, the value of large prey would have become very evident to them and the capacity in order to hunt those. And I believe that by the time we get to Homo erectus, that's fully in place and we're hunting very large animals. So by all means, insects and, and such were a great source of protein, but the kind of protein that you gain by killing a large animal would bring a huge benefit to the entire group as it's moving across the savanna. Mm-hmm. Yes, and the consumption, the consumption of meat is also a very important step in our evolution because it was one of the things that not only also contributed to how to us developing other aspects of our sociality, like for example, when we shared meat, we also developed certain uh, traits of our cooperative psychology or group psychology even. Uh, and also it gave us a lot of uh, high quality nutrients that also allowed for us to expand our brain capacity, right? Yeah, yeah. so if you look at the um, sharing of chimpanzees, they don't share very well. They mostly give to other animals when they nudge them and and push them into it. And one of the problems with their hunts is that animals who stay out of the hunt nonetheless are equally likely to end up sharing some of the product of the hunt you know, monkey hunts, for example, is animals who cooperate and help. And so that kind of social structure is never going to allow effective group cooperation. But once we're on the savanna and once we're um, 
bipedal and so there and we develop stone throwing and we can start to protect ourselves now the um the the capacities that we had to share which were already there are likely to be that much more greatly strengthened because it would have been huge evolutionary pressure on our ancestors to be more cooperative remember that once we can throw stones to drive predators away it's now in everyone's interest not to run away but rather to stone the predator so those animals those ancestors of ours who instead chose to run away, who were not very cooperative, would have been soon shunned by other members of the group. And those other members of the group would now have very effective ways of enforcing cooperation because, of course, they can stone a member of their own group as effectively as they can stone a predator. And so there would have been greater reason to cooperate, greater capacity to enforce cooperation, and therefore greater benefits that come from it when they start killing these large animals and they're more capable of divvying them out in some sort of reasonable fashion. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, and another thing that was also a very important stepping stone in our evolution and also allowed us to extract even more nutritious value from meat was uh, our ability to dominate fire and to cook uh, meat, correct? Yeah, that's right. So Richard Rangham argued not long ago in his book Catching Fire that the origins of fire must go back to somewhere around the beginnings of Homo erectus because we see much greater cranial capacity in Homo erectus and a much smaller gut. And the only way that you can drive such a big brain with such a small gut is if you can increase your consumption of meat and ideally release more nutrients from it, which is via fire. So he argued that the control of fire would be way earlier than we previously believed it to be. And evidence is now pushing it back to be earlier than we thought it was at the time that he wrote that book. So, so far he's proved to be correct, that as we find more more and better evidence, the control of fires push farther back. I believe the latest finds push it back to at least a million years ago um, in a cave in South Africa. And so that that's already earlier than it was known to be when he wrote that book. And my guess is that he's gonna, if we can find evidence, it'll push back even earlier still, just as he proposed. Mm-hmm. Okay, so our diets allowed us to expand our brain. But was it also the case that uh, the new ways we had to learn to, in- to interact with other individuals in, uh, in complex societies as human societies are, uh, did that also contribute to our, to, uh, to our brain expansion and brain de- development? Because, I, I mean, the, there are people like... Uh, I'm recalling, for example, Dr. Robin Dunbar referring to the social brain hypothesis and how certain parts of our brain, uh, like the prefrontal, prefrontal, sorry, prefrontal cortex, expanded more in comparison with other primates also to help us deal with those new uh, social challenges, right? Yeah, I believe that's correct. So the um, fire helped us grow a larger brain by giving us the necessary nutrients but fire doesn't give us a motivation to grow a larger brain we don't once we can control fire we don't need a brain to be even bigger because we've already controlled fire we've achieved that goal so the question then is what are the evolutionary pressures that push us toward greater intelligence because everything in evolution comes with a cost if we evolve a larger brain not only do we need to provide the calories to pay for that larger brain. But of course, there's a cost for our mothers in birth in that they have to pass that larger brain through the birth canal. And so what are the gains that we that we get from that larger brain? And I completely agree with you that sociality was the pressure on that, on that factor. That was the 
Sociality is what led to those gains. So to the degree that you and I can cooperate more effectively, can plan a hunt, can develop division of labor and coordinate the hunt more effectively, we can bring down larger animals. So our sociality gives our group emergent properties that makes us more effective. There's also the added pressure that if our group is becoming smarter and I'm not smarter, I'll be left behind. People will manipulate me. I won't get the things that I want. I won't benefit from the group as much as if I were as smart or even smarter than other group members. So you've got emergent properties of groups that benefit everybody when we all become smarter. So it still manifests itself at the individual level. And then of course you've got competition for status within groups in order to be chosen as a mate, in order to be chosen as an ally, to to lead the group and get the benefits that come with that. And all of those would have put great pressure on us to become more intelligent. And so the sociality, I believe, is a primary driver of the massive increase in cranial capacity that we've seen um, since around the time of Australopithecus. Mm -hmm. Yes, but uh, a larger and more complex brain also has some downsides from an evolutionary perspective, like, for example, the fact that uh, when we develop those huge brains, uh, we, we got prolonged developmental periods and prolonged life histories, particularly in comparison with other primates. And so children also got longer periods of dependency. And, uh, and we, can, we can then talk also about uh, how that influenced our other aspects of our sociality in terms of uh, cooperative breathing and things like that, but uh, th that's also true, correct? Yeah, yeah, by all means. And so another price that you have to pay for that is that when we, de when we decided to go down this cognitive pathway, you know, decided, it's just something that evolved, it wasn't a decision, but when we decided to go down this cognitive pathway, that puts enormous pressure on learning. And so our psychology has to change in a big way, both to facilitate learning and to facilitate teaching. And it also has to change in ways that facilitate longer parenting. So chimp mothers are already very good mothers. They already have highly dependent young when they're born. And those highly dependent young are dependent for years. We simply stretch that process out even further. And so in doing that, we had to provide better ways to feed our young for longer periods of time. We had to find better ways to teach our young for longer periods of time. And so it would have changed the social structure a lot. And in all probability, that's where monogamy in our species comes from. Because to have young that are that dependent for such a long period of time, not just on calories, but also on learning, is going to be massively benefited if the father starts to play a role as well. So in chimpanzees, the father doesn't really play a role. Mothering is primarily provided by the, or parenting is provided by the mother, and she can maintain what's necessary to get that offspring through the dependency. But given that our dependency is so much greater, the notion is that we're a little bit more like birds, right? Birds tend to be very pair bonding. They tend to be very monogamous. And as, because they're young are up in a nest, and so they're dependent on two parents in order to feed them. Human beings are a little bit like that. We're so weak and worthless for so long that it takes two parents in order to help us survive. Mm -hmm. Yes, so the key term here is pair bonding, because I guess that perhaps when people think about monogamy, perhaps they imagine that people, uh, that a couple were together throughout their entire lives, but that's not really the norm. It is more perhaps uh, in human society serial monogamy or, or not? 
Yes, yeah, monogamy is very common. Um, some couples happen to be a perfect match, I suppose, and they pair bond for their whole lives. Although, even in couples like that, couples like that, there's often evidence of sexual um, uh, opportunities that were taken along the way. And so, it's not perfect sexual monogamy, but it's certainly um, long-term social monogamy. But even more common is. Uh, this sort of serial monogamy that you refer to, where uh, people pair bond for a while, they may have a few kids or not, and then somewhere down the road, they mutually agree to split up and they pair bond with others. And so we tend to think of monogamy as a lifelong thing, because of course, that's what you aspire to. Uh, certainly in, in modern industrialized nations, when you marry somebody, you hope you're doing it for life. And our ancestors may have hoped they were doing it for life as well. But as often as not, they did it for a while until differences drove them apart. Mm-hmm. So, uh, is pair bonding in humans uh, behind the fact that we find uh, marriage in a form or another in all studied human societies? I believe so, yes. I mean, they're all. There's lots of sexual relations across different people. But in every single society that we've looked at, there's also monogamy and there's also human pair bonding. And in fact, human pair bonding is the most common form that we see everywhere. And in some form or another, there's, some, there's an institutionalized version whereby people set up shop together and they're regarded as being largely exclusive. Mm-hmm. Okay, so when it comes to monogamy, I mean, it's a benefit, I guess, to children, but uh, it can also be a benefit both for men and women, because I guess that in the case of men, it reduces, at least to a certain extent, uh, paternity uncertainty. That is a huge problem for males from an evolutionary perspective. And in the case of women, uh, I guess that what they get from that is that they get exclusive access to the resources provided by that by that specific men am i right or Yes. So the so paternal uncertainty is only a problem if you are going to behave as a father and provision your young. If you're if you have no interest in the young, then it doesn't matter that there's paternal uncertainty. And many species have complete paternal uncertainty. They don't know whose offspring are their own, but they don't care. Right. All they try to do is get mating opportunities whenever possible and then live out their lives. But if you're going to try to help raise the young, if you're going to put energy into them, then you want at least some level of paternal certainty. And so again, birds are analogous to humans in that regard. You tend to get a monogamous system. There's always some sneaking around, some extra pair copulations, as we often refer to it. But nonetheless, the deal that's being made is basically she will remain faithful to him by and large, and he will play a role in parenting and um, the, the offspring. He'll play a role in helping them develop. And you see that deal um, in humans, and we have the huge advantage beyond us species that we can also communicate so well and that means that um so male partners female partners can tell the male partners what it is that they particularly want how they particularly need them to help and they can basically form these cooperative ventures that are much more complicated than animals that really can't communicate to the degree that we can And talking about cooperative breeding in human societies, uh, the first thing that comes to mind, I guess, is the parents. But uh, grandparents and perhaps even the extended family might also play an important role in helping with that. Correct. And that's absolutely right. And so if you look at hunter-gatherer societies around the globe, grandparents on average play a very important role. They've 
there's even really good data that grandparents have played an important role up until modern times in helping their typically their daughters um, raise more children and more children more frequently and, and a greater number successfully to adulthood. You have to remember that until modern times, you know, 40 to 50 percent of our um, children died in, in um, childhood. And so the help of a grandparent was super important. Um, the other side of that coin, of course, is that it's not just to grandparents that we look, but we look to relatives and friends, and we all make deals with each other to help to help raise those children because they are so much effort. And so if you have several dependent young and you're trying to gather foods and other things, it's often super important that you've got the help of your female friends. Um, fathers also and males also play a role. We play a much bigger role than the other great apes, but we certainly on average don't play as big of a role as females do. Mm -hmm. Okay, so just before we get into other topics, because I've recently listened to your participation in the Joe Rogan's podcast, uh, because at a certain point there, you were discussing uh, Christopher Ryan's book, Sex at Dawn, and you were trying to explain, I think, how one of the big problems with these theses is that it can't or does not explain well how jealousy might have evolved and perhaps other things that we've already talked about here but could you tell us about that yeah so in ryan's book he argues that um, humans aren't fundamentally jealous the jealousy isn't something that maybe was brought about by agricultural revolution and industrialization and the sort of societal push toward monogamy that's not natural for our species. And I think that represents a misreading of both the anthropological literature and the biological literature. His basic argument is that human females are argued by biologists to be exchanging sex for resources. And what he argues is no, human females actually engage in sex purely for pleasure's sake. And so they're not using it to exchange for resources. And I think, again, that's a misunderstanding. The um, jealousy exists in all human societies, even those societies that are highly polyamorous. Remember, as I said before, they tend to form pair bonds. And if one member of the pair is too is, is seeking outside sexual relations too often, that pair will typically dissolve and the other partner becomes jealous. We see jealousy in all humans that we've ever measured it, you know, despite efforts to find this sort of culture where we're free of jealousy and free of violence. We're never free of violence and we're never free of jealousy. It seems to be fundamental to our evolutionary history. Uh, the other side is that females across the animal kingdom, um, because they invest so much more in reproduction than males do, they've evolved to become more choosy. They've evolved to seek resources in one form or another from the males with whom they copulate, um, at least insofar as when there's female choice. There are, of course, many systems where there isn't female choice, and then they're not in a situation where they can request resources. For those females who have choice, and in humans, that's most societies, those um, females seek out partners who are going to contribute to the well-being of them and their offspring, because, of course, they're putting so much effort into their offspring that they need that. And they've evolved to become very jealous if the male directs his resources elsewhere. And males have evolved to become very jealous if they provide resources and females direct their sexual attention elsewhere. So all all of that is entirely inconsistent with the arguments that are made in Sex of Dawn, which, by the way, has been thoroughly debunked if you're interested in a really lovely book called Sex at Dusk, where the author, an anthropologist, goes through all the literature, even the primary literature cited in Sex at Dawn, to show how it, um, the arguments in Sex at Dawn represent misunderstandings. Mm -hmm. 
And so, uh, does jealousy happen in both men and women? I mean, I guess that perhaps in different ways, but in both sexes. Yes, yeah, so both sexes very much experience jealousy, um, particularly when they're involved in an exclusive sexual relationship, like they found somebody who they want to be exclusive with, if that person's attentions are directed elsewhere. Now, they, they do in slightly different ways. My favorite experiment showing that is the work by David Buss. When he came along, there was no evidence for sex differences in jealousy, but he pointed out, well, conception's internal, and that is a threat to males. They don't know for sure if they're the father. And of course, it requires so much effort for women to reproduce that they are going to want male resources, and males are less concerned about that. And that fundamental biological difference in our reproductive system ought to lead to psychological differences. And sure enough, on average, they do. On average, males are more jealous at the thought of their partner having sexual infidelity, and on average females are more jealous than males at the thought of their partner having emotional infidelity. Now, of course, these are averages. The distributions always overlap. Once we went down that cognitive pathway, our genes had to relinquish control of our thoughts and behaviors. Now they only nudge us. They can't determine how we behave anymore. And so your, your upbringing, your, the particular makeup of your, <coughs> of your genes, your culture, etc., all have a massive influence on how these things work. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I think that there's another couple of factors that we haven't yet talked about that go into how our sociality evolved and developed, uh, like uh, communication and language. Do, uh, particularly language, it seems to be a un uniquely human aspect, I guess. I, I think that there isn't any other species that has language at least to the extent that humans have it. So, uh, what is the role that language played in our evolution? And I, I mean, th does it also allows for us to uh, allow for us to expand our other cognitive aspects, like, for example, theory of mind and the ability to teach and learn and things like that. All of those issues were super important. Language is mission critical because it suddenly enabled us to learn from the, from the indirect experiences of others. And so if you went out hunting and you experienced some event that I wasn't there for, our ancestors prior to language would have very limited capacity to explain that. You could do the waggle dance of a bee or the equivalent and tell me where food was. Um, you could even sort of show me the big cut you got and mime how that would have come about. But you wouldn't have had the capacity to explain all the subtleties of what took place until you had language. And so language massively increased the power of humanity in our ability to achieve our goals because it suddenly connected our minds together in a way they never had been before. Despite the fact that our minds are awfully special, they're really awfully special when you link them together. And so what language did is it allowed cultures to ratchet the knowledge that they had on top of itself. Everybody didn't have to learn everything anew every generation. And so is the knowledge that used to only belong to geniuses in the past become things that you can teach children in today's world because the language allows us to communicate those very complicated ideas. And so that, that allowed us to much more effectively adapt to every environment on earth. And that allowed us, particularly since the agricultural revolution, to ratchet our inventions much more rapidly on top of each other. So you and I 
are having this conversation at a great distance from each other, even though neither of us could invent any of the equipment that's necessary that lies between us. But enough human beings have written down how to do that, that other human beings have not only done so, but have continually improved that process. And so it's this, this ratcheting um, that language enables that can't be found in any other domain. And of course, written language makes it even better because it can be communicated by people you haven't even met. But that tradition has been around for a very long time in the oral storytelling tradition of our ancestors. So I think language was the single biggest factor that pushed us from very effective groups to the super effective groups that we became today to, to really dominate the landscape. Mm-hmm. And was it also a thing that allowed for us to uh, create a culture and to have culture in ways that are really very far apart from a culture that perhaps uh, very limited forms of culture that perhaps other animals also have? Because we really have uh, um, the ability to accumulate a culture over time. Correct. Yeah, so, so language would have made culture that much more accumulative and that much more sophisticated. I suspect that prior to language, we had miming, we acted things out. And at that point in time, we were probably already very effective because we could plan how our hunts are going to go. You know, you go that way and I'll go this way. When we encounter the animal, we do this. And we could have planned relatively simple activities that nonetheless were super important that gave our groups emergent properties by virtue of that sort of division of labor. I suspect that div- division of labor predated language. We know that Homo erectus shows signs of it over a million years ago. And language is probably not that old. So, but nonetheless, it would have taken l- something like language to enable the world, that, the very complicated world that we inhabit today. And so language was mission critical. It, it relies on a number of other features, things like theory of mind, right? If I don't have theory of mind, my language skills are more limited because I don't know what you know and what you don't know. And I make lots of pronouncements that don't make much sense. And we can see that in children all the time. They have, when they're young, they have very poor theory of mind and they're constantly saying unintelligible things because they don't realize that we don't share the contents of their minds. So these various abilities would have all ratcheted on each other. They would all depend on each other and they would have, of course, all enabled each other as well. And so it didn't just pop out of nowhere. Each step of the way was a small development, but each one of those steps made a big difference in the capacity of our groups to rise back to the top of the food. Mm-hmm. Yes, and this is very interesting because uh, I guess that from an evolutionary perspective, we tend to evaluate, explain how we we developed our adaptations uh, in regards to the evolutionary pressures that came from the environments we developed in or where we evolved in. But uh, once we had culture, and particularly cumulative culture, we were also able to create new environments for ourselves, and those environments also exerted uh, at least some sorts of environmental pressures in us. And so uh, then we got uh, a dual inheritance theory or cult, uh, gene culture coevolution, that is a culture also influencing how uh, our biology evolves. Right. Absolutely. 
Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. That process was super important. And cumulative culture is something that involved a very impressive brain to get to the point where we could achieve it. But once we got to that point, cumulative culture would have had a big influence on the way our brain evolves, the way our psychology evolves, the way our bodies evolve. Because all the inventions that were brought about by our cumulative culture drove us further down this cognitive niche where we become weak and soft, but we rely on our brains to achieve our goals anyway. Mm-hmm. Yes, so uh, we are a very cooperative species, but I mean, our cooperation doesn't really extend to the entire species because we also evolved as extremely groupish beings, right? And there's in-group and out-group dynamics throughout our evolutionary history and even nowadays. Absolutely. So once we got to Homo erectus and our group started to have these emergent properties and became very effective hunters, we no longer were really subject to predation on the savanna anymore. As an individual, we would be by ourselves one day and get eaten. But as a group, but as a group, we weren't. We nothing. There were no animals that could effectively attack us as groups anymore. At that point, our groups were at the top of the food chain. But of course, there was still one major threat to our groups, and that was other groups of hominins. And so, at least since Homo erectus and the division of labor that they've had, the other groups of, of Homo erectus were both a threat and an opportunity. And so we became very cooperative within our groups and sometimes cooperative between groups, but very often other groups were as much of a threat as they were an opportunity. And so we, be, we were non-cooperative. So our natural inclination to cooperate at least since Homo erectus, has not extended to other groups of hominins. And that leads us to this sort of intense tribalism that we experience today, be it nationally based, be it religiously based, be it based on political party. You can see it across a wide variety of domains. You, you know, we have a tendency to support our sport team, even though really the members of the team change continuously. We have a tendency to care which kind of computer or phone we use. All those are natural extensions of our tribalism. Mm-hmm. Yes, I mean, us from our modern perspective, we tend to look at tribalism and groupism and things like that as negative aspects of our psychological nature, let's say. But I, I, I mean, in fact, until very recently, we really did live uh, in environments where, where we had zero-sum games playing around and, and that, that's one of the reasons why we, we couldn't really uh, be cooperative toward individuals from the entire species, right? That's right. So at least until the invention of agriculture and ideally the creation of cities, life tended to be a zero-sum game. Now that didn't mean that we never benefited by cooperating from, with other groups because we often did, either through trade or through exchange of males or females to avoid inbreeding, new ideas, etc. So there are often benefits, but there were just as often costs. In fact, maybe even more often costs. And so that sort of zero-sum world we lived in didn't push us toward cooperation. The world we live in now is very much an interlocked world. It's a global world. And so fortunately, most of the societal pressures push us toward cooperating with each other, even across group boundaries. And so in today's world, you know, we lament the fact that we're so tribal. But if you look around, we're nonetheless super cooperative with people, even people who come from groups that we were in great deal of conflict with before. And so it doesn't take long for that conflict to disappear and for two previous competitors to become allies. And we see that around the world, both at the governmental level and at the 
level of um, political organizations and other things as well. So I remain very hopeful that our cooperative circles continue to expand rather than manifesting themselves in the kind of extreme tribalism that we do still see and that we tend not to like. Mm -hmm. Okay, and what changed with the introduction of agriculture? I, I mean, perhaps a lot of, differ, of different things, but uh, perhaps I would like to ask you more about... So, th there are people that say that it was agriculture that created social hierarchization and social inequality. But was it really, or perhaps we already had uh, uh, at least some degree of social inequality when we were still hunter-gatherers or something like that, and then with the advent of agriculture and then the ability to accumulate more and more stuff, then that that inequality really expanded or increased. So if we look at immediate return hunter-gatherers, who are hunter-gatherers who tend to live near the tropics and who don't grow their own food at all, they tend to be very egalitarian. They tend to share all the meat that's, that's um, killed, all the large game that's killed, they tend to share it across the group in different sharing rules, but as a rule, it gets shared out pretty equally. The... Um, once you get to hunter-gatherer societies that are no longer immediate return, that develop the capacity to store food, then, then you start to see the origins of inequality way before the onset of agriculture. Because once you can uh, control uh, a site that's, that's rich in resources and that's reliable in those resources, it becomes worth trying to defend that site. And we see the same thing with animal territories. So human beings are no different from other animals in this regard. And so, for example, in the Pacific Northwest, where there are reliable salmon runs and where the salmon, Pacific Northwest of the United States, where the salmon time pretty much every year in the same place pretty much every year, then you develop inequality as people start to realize, boy, if I can monopolize this site, I can live like a king because I can store these salmon over the winter. I don't, they don't just go to waste. And so they start to develop hierarchical organization where some people protect the site, some people harvest it, others are in charge, etc. We see the same thing prior to the advent of agriculture for 10 or 20,000 years even across the areas where we first see agriculture in the Middle East, in China, in Europe, we see signs of increasing inequality. We see people living lives where they're more, um, where, they're, where they're less nomadic, where they build larger structures that, that um, they live in for large periods of time. And some people had bigger structures than others. Some had um, some at very small, meager places. We see burial sites before agriculture where some people are buried in fancy ways with jewelry and others aren't. So we know that, agri that agriculture played a big role in the development of inequality, but that process was already underway by the time ag agriculture was invented. It's human nature, it's, it's nature of all animals to try to monopolize resources when possible. And the big advantage of humans is that we also have anti-hierarchy mechanisms where we're really good at sharing things out. We're really good at leveling society. And so we see that most notably in these immediate return agriculturals, um, immediate return hunter-gatherers. And then we start to see it again in modern societies where people say, well, it's not right for someone to have so much more than others. We'll increase the taxation rate as you make more money and redistribute that. That's an anti-hierarchy mechanism as well. As well.
And when you talk about social inequality, it is not simply economic inequality, but also equality in terms of access to, for example, sexual resources, right? Because I guess that at least in the in the very early stages of uh, agricultural societies, uh, I, I mean, many of them were polygamous, and in polygamous societies, there was or there tended to be really a huge disparity between the number of wives that people at the top of the hierarchy were able to have uh, in comparison with men from the uh, lower strata of the society, that perhaps many of them weren't even able to have uh, even one wife. And that's absolutely right. So even again, even before agriculture, once we could store food, some people could afford more than one wife and some couldn't. <clears throat> In some of those systems, females had choice, and they would choose, they would rather be the second wife of a well-to-do person than the first wife of a poor person. And in some of those systems, there wasn't female choice. So people were trading female kin and things like that. In either case, you end up with perhaps the most important inequality of all, which is inequality of the opportunity to establish long-term uh, pair bonds. And so if you look at our Y-linked DNA and our mitochondrial DNA, which we inherit from our mothers, you can see that we have greater variability. We have more female ancestors than we have male ancestors. And that tells us that for a very long period of time, even predating agriculture, but of course made exacerbated by agriculture, we have some men getting multiple mating opportunities and some men getting none. Mm -hmm. And would you say that that's perhaps an, another reason why in modern industrial societies that they are mostly monogamous, perhaps, I mean, uh, and, and also perhaps because polygamy really has the risk of destabilizing society because it leaves a lot of men uh, dissatisfied with not having access to women. Right. Yeah, so the, the polygamy, a lot of, in a lot of polygamous systems, women don't end up faring very well. And though in some they do, particularly those that have female choice where they can decide to be a second wife of one person or a first of another. But in every polygamous society, the poor men are the losers. They end up with no partner at all. And we know that unpartnered men are trouble for society at large. They, um, they have high testosterone. They, are, they agitate. They're more likely to um, to cause violence and other societal disruptions. And so I think as societies industrialize and start to establish rules, they tend to eliminate polygamy for a host of those reasons. The, the truth of the matter, of course, is that wealthier <clears throat> and more powerful men, they may or may not be allowed to marry more than one person. That still exists in some places. But even where they're not allowed to marry more than one person, they'll have mistresses. And so that sort of inequality is impossible to actually stamp out permanently because women will choose to be mistress again of a wealthy man, even if they can't marry the person over being the wife of a poor person. And of course, that, that, that's a decision that people are free to make. There's no right or wrong morally in doing that. But it does mean that you, you can create rules to try to even out these hierarchies, but you, it's impossible to truly eliminate them. Mm -hmm. Okay, so what might be some of the main problems of our brains being adapted to ancient environments and us living nowadays in modern environments that perhaps have a lot of things that we are not really uh, adapted to? 
let's see. And so there's a lot of disconnects between the way we live our life now and the way we lived our life in the past. And one example is the tribalism that you and I were just discussing. That doesn't serve anyone any good. It's an unfortunate residue. But of course, there's other examples as well. For example, if you think about happiness and what makes us happy in life, we all, in the small groups in which we involved, it was super important that we try to rise to the top of the status hierarchy in some domain. So remember, they're very egalitarian groups, but you could be the best hunter, or you could be the best gatherer, or you could be the kindest, or you could be the funniest, you could be the best storyteller, you could be the something in those small groups in which we evolved. And so we, we sought to rise to the top of our hierarchy in our domain of strength. Well, the problem is in the modern world that we live in now with, you know, billions of people around us, and we can see all of them, or not all of them, but a lot of them on television and on the internet, it's impossible to be the top in anything. You can't be the best athlete, you can't be the funniest, you can't be the kindest, you can't be the wealthiest. And so this ancestral mind of wanting to stand out in some domain in order to be chosen as a mate, it's sexual selection that drives that. That ancestral desire um, manifests itself in this kind of hedonic treadmill that we're on now, where if I decide that I want to work hard and earn more money, every new thing that I earn puts me ahead of somebody, but it just allows me to reset my sights on somebody else. And so you can end up doing things that don't benefit your happiness as you're constantly seeking to be the best in a world where it's just no longer possible. So there's these kinds of disconnects between our modern world in which we live with literally you know, millions if not billions of strangers and our ancestral world in which we lived with small groups of people that we tended to know very well. Mm -hmm. Okay, okay. So you've already alluded to this a little bit, but uh, from, from all of this knowledge coming from evolutionary psychology particularly, uh, what does it tell us about uh, what makes us happy? Because due to the things that we are programmed to seek out for and to, and to enjoy, let's say. Yeah, that's a great question. And so there's numerous things that we can do that match our early evolutionary environment and that made us happy then because it made us successful then. And so we've evolved for them to continue to make us happy now. And so they, they tend to be things that we do on average, but we may not always think about. So we should seek out opportunities to cooperate with each other, particularly at work. That was something that made our ancestors very successful. So group projects where we can contribute, where we can play our part are very rewarding to us. We should seek out opportunity for long-term relationships, not just with sexual partners, but also with friends, because that again was mission critical for our ancestors. Having good friends in our group, being part of a network, being part of a network that ideally doesn't change that much, so they're long-term relationships. Now I know in today's world, we get wanderlust, we travel the world, and that's a great thing. But when you do that, it's important to retain your connections to your earlier environments and networks, because those are the things that tend to make us happy over time. The um, we, we discussed earlier the fact that we evolved to learn a lot in order to survive. Well, that means that learning is something that's going to make us happy. And so we should seek out opportunities to learn across our lifespan. The, um, those are the kinds of things that made our ancestors successful, you know, learning new things either by reading or even better via social relations and storytelling and lectures and things like that. All of those are things that we evolved to make us happy. And I think podcasts are a modern example of that, right? So we get to be part of conversations of a much larger network of people. So all these are ways that, that where we can take our current behaviors and match them on to our early evolutionary imperatives and find ways to make ourselves happy that in the past 
um, were super important to us and that we can easily forget today. Now, of course, there's costs as well. Um, our, one of the big evolutionary advantages that we have is our capacity to simulate the future and to make plans without enacting them. And so if I wanted to defeat you in some competition, I could just punch you, but maybe you punch me back and you're stronger and that was a bad idea. And so we, we evolved the capacity it's not going to work out very well. Let me try this strategy. And we can work our way through these simulations. The downside of that is we often live our lives in the future. We literally spend our time planning our day rather than living it. And so we can ignore a lot of the things that would make us happy if we just paid more attention to the present. So evolution gives and it takes away, right? And it's super important for us to keep our mind on, well, what made our ancestors happy? And how can I use those strategies today? And what are the costs that we've encountered by when we run into these new abilities and how can I try to minimize those costs. Mm -hmm. Okay, so would the main things there be uh, our social lives, that is to have friendships, to have good relationships with our family members, to have romantic and sexual partners, uh, to learn a little bit throughout our lives? Uh, to, to, of course, to have access to food and water and to be healthy, would those be the main things there? Yeah, those are mission critical, the, this, this ability to meet those needs that our ancestors had. And so even just food and water is a good example. Our ancestors evolved to be um, food stressed all the time. They were always looking for food and for access to high quality food. And what that tells me is, you know, we've got too much food in most societies today. So it's not an amount anymore, but set aside an opportunity where you sit down with your family or your friends and you have a great meal together. And we know that um, from experimental research that if you do that and you set your phone aside, you put aside the other distractors, that you'll enjoy the meal much more. And so it's easy for us not to focus on the world that we're in right now because we've got our phone with email and all sorts of other things coming in all the time. But the data show very clearly that if we focus on the people we're with, particularly by setting aside things like mealtimes, which were really important for our ancestors, that tends to make us happy. Mm -hmm. Okay, so perhaps just one last question, and this is apart from your book, because I read this very recent article that both you and Dr. David Buss wrote, and I've also already had Dr. Buss on the show, so, uh, and the title of it is Psychological Barriers to Evolutionary Psychology, Ideological Bias and Coalitional Adaptations. And there you identify four different psychological barriers that affect a lot of, in the case you refer to, social psychologists. And one of them is political orientation, that is, they tend to be left-leaning. Another one is a belief in a blank slate mind. The third one is the rejection of findings that go against that view of the mind as being a blank slate. And then some, a couple of psychological adaptations like social persuasion in instead of truth-seeking, prestige maintenance, forming and maintaining in-group coalitions and things like that. So could you tell us about that and perhaps explain each of those findings or conclusions? So... Um, scientists are absolutely just like everybody else, that we all have our own biases, we all have the way that we want the world to be, we're all self-serving, we want to be a success, we want our ideas to matter. And so the question is, how can we um, 
live with our evolved psychology and nonetheless do an enterprise that we didn't really evolve to do. Um, one of the examples that you just gave was this notion that we evolved to persuade rather than seek the truth. And of course, truth matters, but truth is not the most important thing once you become a highly social being. And so if I can convince you that I'm really a stronger person than I really am, or a smarter person than I really am, or in some other way, better person than I really am, you'll tend to defer to me when you shouldn't, and I'll gain things that I wouldn't gain otherwise. So once we became this group living species, the um, objective truth always mattered, but the subjective truth mattered a lot as well. And so our, our incredible mental capacities didn't just evolve to find the objective truth, but rather it evolved to try to persuade others of the subjective truth. And so you think, you sometimes look around the world and you see people being really biased, and you ask, how could they be so biased when they're so smart? But of course, just because you're smart doesn't make you less biased. If anything, it makes you better biased, right? It makes you more effective at co communicating your biases to others. And of course, science are subjected to this, these pressures just like everybody else. If I have a new hypothesis, I want the world to believe that hypothesis because that's how I can become famous. And so the, this gets in the way of this sort of dispassionate seeking of the truth, but the beauty of science is that it's an antagonistic enterprise. And so if I propose my theory, I say X is true, and if I can just convince the world that X is true, I'll be famous, somebody out there thankfully will be also become famous if they can show that Y is true, or at least if they, or even if that X is not true. And so this, this mutually antagonistic process allows our biases to cancel each other out. Now that can create problems, however, if we all tend to share the same biases. We don't all tend to share the same biases in the new theory that we're proposing, because we all propose our own new hypotheses. But we do often tend to share the same biases politically or in some other way. And so one of the reasons that um, David and I propose that the left-leaning nature of the field is a problem, is that that means that we all have a blind spot. We're this sort of political monoculture. We all want the world to be a certain way. We want the results to line up a certain way. And so we're less critical of those results when they line up that way. It's super important that somebody else comes along and says, who doesn't want the world to line up that way, maybe they're politically conservative. And they say, no, those data aren't consistent with that idea. You've forgotten to ask this question, or you've forgotten to run this analysis. And so the left-leaning nature of our field is not a problem per se, but it is a problem if we're incapable of taking on the perspective of the other side and thinking of the attacks that they would do. And it's simply human nature that we tend not to do that. So one of the things that we proposed, and we're not the first to say this, but I believe it's true, is that people on the left are more inclined to believe a blank slate model of, the hum of human nature, where we don't have these inborn proclivities. Because people on the left tend to want to engineer society to make it more fair, to make it less unequal. And if the mind really is a blank slate, if people can be any way you want them to be or any way they want to be, it's a lot easier to get to an equal society than if, in fact, the mind is not a blank slate and we're, we're born with all sorts of proclivities, particularly if those proclivities tend to differ, for example, by gender. If males and females tend to differ in some kinds of ways, that makes it harder to get rid of things like sexism. And so the argument that we propose in the chapter is that all of these psychological processes that we evolve for a good reason make it harder to do science. They don't make it impossible, they just make it harder and we should try to be mindful of them. Mm -hmm. So in the particular case of people preferring social persuasion over truth-seeking, 
Uh, in that particular instance, would you agree with Dan Sperber's and Hugo Mercier's uh, argumentative theory of reason? That is, that our reasoning abilities evolved not to seek truth, but rather to persuade other people that we are right or to maintain our social reputation and things like that? Absolutely. I think that their 2011 paper in Behavioral and Brain Sciences is a fantastic example and description of this very problem. Probably drew my attention to the issue more than any other paper I've ever read. I think it's a super way of thinking about the problem and, and made a really important contribution. Mm -hmm. Okay, so Dr. Von Hippel, just before we go, would you like to tell people, apart from your book, what are some of the best places on the internet for them to find out a little bit more about your work? Oh, um, well, the, the, there's obviously the book, The Social Leap, and um, that's a great place to find out about it. That people can go to my website, and most of my papers are listed there. They can, um, they can be downloaded there or via ResearchGate. But, of course, some of the more recent papers aren't yet available anywhere except the journals themselves. And in those cases, people are always should feel free to just Google me and send me an email, and I'm happy to send them copies of papers. And um, then, of course, there's podcasts like yours and others that I've been engaging in since the book was published, and, and those are a great place to find out. If you don't want to go dive into the technical details of the published articles, but you want to be part of the conversation, um, there's your podcast, there's um, Astral Hustle's podcast, there's um, Joe Rogan's podcast, there's quite a few out there now. Mm -hmm. Okay, good. So, Dr. Von Hippel, again, it was really a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you for taking the, ti the, the time and perhaps, I don't know, in the future, we could have another conversation. It was great chatting with you and I'd love to do so again. Hi, everybody. Thank you for coming to my channel and for watching this interview until the end. Uh, I've started this channel in February 2018 and so I've been putting out regular interviews with academics and intellectuals from a variety of fields and I would really like to ask you just to consider visiting my Patreon page and making a pledge there. Any amount, even $1, would already be a great help. Uh, and so otherwise, if you like what I'm doing, please share it, leave a like and hit the subscription button. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my patrons, Karen Litzke, Anne Blanchett, Per Elga Larson, Lau Guerrero, Chantal Jolina, Jim Frank, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunda and Brian Rivera. Thank you for all.